So the Buddha said that generosity is a staircase to heaven and the best path to liberation. Generosity should be considered like a door for entering perfect peace. And this is um, from the advice that he gave to layman Tundila, who had just given very generous alms to the Buddha and his followers. He said, Householder, extremely great alms have been given by you today. Truly, generosity is an ancient custom of the wise. Householder, even I, when I was being destined for enlightenment, knowledge still not matured, and living for the sake of striving for enlightenment, gave great gifts. Now, having become enlightened as the fruit of those gifts, I have received omniscient knowledge. Without generosity, it would not be possible to become free. So I'd like to talk tonight about generosity. And um, yesterday, or what, some, sometime in the last few days, uh, maybe it was New Year's Eve, <laughs> I don't remember, um, Gil was talking about um, how the young teachers, Jack and Joseph and Sharon and John and all the people who went to Asia um, in their early 20s were so moved and um, inspired by the teachings that were given freely to them that they determined to come back here and give the teachings freely over here. And that was quite an aspiration for young people who were quite naive and had no idea how to set up centers to expect to do this for no charge other than the accommodation. And this building is here today because of their generosity and because of all the participants who've generously given over the years. And they came up to Canada and generously gave of their time there. All the teachers that you've met from the East Coast, from the West Coast, came to Canada and shared their teaching with us. And it's been a very inspiring thing to me. And when um, I first started um, beginning to teach in Canada, um, we don't have a center there. And I was determined that we too would have residential retreats because with the exchange rate, the Canadian dollar is only worth 60 cents. <laughs> it's pretty hard for Canadians to come and sit here. And so we determined we would have residential retreats and we found a center run by some Benedictine sisters. Sister Jill, the matriarch, is in her 80s and the other sisters are in their 60s and probably 70s. And they had never seen people like us before, but they, they opened their doors to us. And the fierce few retreats, they would watch us sitting and walking, and you know they would be very puzzled, but they were very generous. And then after one retreat that I was teaching with um, James Barras, um, I came across one of the sisters um, in the passageway, and um, she said to me, you have all given us a great gift. She said, I see these people come, and they walk, and they sit, and they're so dedicated. And 
I see them go through all these difficult times. There are tears, there's sadness, there's difficulty. Sometimes they look joyful, sometimes they look depressed, but they keep on. And by the end of the week, you're all transformed. (laughs) And she said, she had tears in her eyes. She said, what you're doing here is beautiful. And um, Sister Jill said to me, she said, I can see that what we're all doing the same thing. What we all want is the truth. And what's happening here is that hearts are opening. And um, she knew that people came to our retreats and um, that some of them didn't have very much money. And that in the first few retreats that I gave, there weren't a lot of people and we didn't have any scholarship funds. And we too wanted to do what Joseph and Sharon and Jack and all the other teachers had done. We wanted anyone to be able to come. But so what we did was we used our dana to pay for the scholarships um, and so that anyone could come. And sometimes there would be more people that needed scholarships than <laughs> there were people that paid. So it was a, a kind of shaky situation. But things grew, and Sister Jill knew that. And so after the retreat that I mentioned, she, at the end when I came to pay her, she said, I'm not going to charge for you and James and for the manager. She said, I won't charge for your accommodation. The three of you can be free. And we'd been sitting there for a week, so that was, um, you know, like $1,500 that she wasn't going to charge us. And we were really moved by that. And so we, t- we told that story to the participants um, at the end of the retreat. And the dana that we received was overwhelming. Both James and I were really moved by it. And um, our manager, Jenna, had always wanted to come to Spirit Rock with her family. Her dream had been that she could bring her husband, who'd never sat before, and her two children to the family retreat. And so James and I decided that we would pay for them to come to the family retreat out of our dana. And so they came, and um, the children had never seen monks before. And Arjun Amaro and Arjun, the other, there were two or three other monks with them. At lunchtime, those of you who have ever been to the family retreat, the monks chant, and the children all fill their bowls. And they fight for having a turn to be the ones that fill the monks' bowls. (laughs) And so then Arjun Amaro tells them that every cell in his body and every um, part of him is there because of dana. And that if they didn't give to him, he wouldn't live. And so they were really impressed by that, because they really saw that they were feeding him directly, and that his needs were being met by what they did. And um, so Jenna gave each of the children $10, and that was more than they'd ever had. They're quite young, and they were really excited. And she said, you can choose at the end of the retreat how much you give us, Donna, and how much you keep for yourselves. And she could see, particularly her little daughter, who's quite tight-fisted, going through all the things that she could buy (laughs) with 10 bucks. (laughs) And she stayed back. She stayed completely out of it. She let let them go through this process themselves of how they were going to do this. 
And um, at the end of the retreat, um, they each gave some dana and they each kept some. And she said it was a wonderful experience for her and for them to, to feel so good about it. But they didn't give it all. They're human. But they, they were able to go through that process of, um, of clinging and of letting go. And so um, the story continues. <laughs> um, Jenna came back, and um, at the next retreat, she told her story. And um, at the end of that retreat, one of the participants um, came to us, and he said that for the next retreat and the next few retreats, he would pay for two retreats so that someone anonymously who had no money would be able to come. And he's continued to do that um, each retreat that he comes to. And then the sisters came upon a very hard time. The archbishop, or whatever they're called, sorry, <laughs> um, had done some very, very unfortunate business deals. He was a wonderful, kind-hearted person, but had no business sense. And he lost a huge amount of dollars in the millions. And so the sisters were told that they would have to sell the retreat center in order for the diocese to raise the money to pay all his debts. And um, we were horrified, and of course, so were they. And so um, we all talked about it, they talked about it. And Sister Jill, who is amazing, said, um, the women shall prevail. <laughs> and <laughs> she and the other sisters um, decided that to hell with these men <laughs> you know, who were saying that, you know, sell it and make a profit and people were coming to look at it. We're going to buy it. Of course, they have no money, but they all work for free. They don't get paid for anything that they do there. It's all dana. And so they thought, well, we're not an expensive outfit to run. If we can raise the money, we can do it. So they had to raise a very large amount of money. And um, we sent out letters for them. We helped in that process. And um, to briefen the story a little, they've done it. What seemed impossible was done by these elderly women um, and by the generosity of the community who believed in them who saw that they were open to any, any religion, any group of people who came seeking the truth. And um, since that time, the generosity has continued. Um, and it just keeps on spreading. And it's so moving to me that um, by giving, so many, so many hearts can open and how the process can um, feed on itself. So, generosity is the first of the paramis. And the paramis are these um, qualities that, when we develop, can lead to peace and liberation. And the Chinese character for parami is crossing over to the other shore, the shore of peace, the shore of freedom. Generosity is the first of them, and it's the foundation upon which all the others are built. And there are two um, Pali words for generosity. There's dana, which is the one you're familiar, which is a giving out. It's the one that is, um, it's the one that's the first practice for those who want to decrease craving. 
It's the antidote to desire and attachment. The other word for generosity is kaga, and that is relinquishing. That's a letting go, a releasing. Um, so dana is distributing of goods more, that kind of sense of giving, and the other way is letting go, relinquishing what we're holding on to, and that can have many meanings. And together, it's like they're giving out but are not seeking anything return. So you're giving out, and then you're relinquishing any attachment to an outcome. Ajahn Chah says, do everything with a mind that lets go. Do not expect a reward. So generosity in this way, it weakens those difficulties of mind. It helps us relinquish or let go of um, the difficult mind states or kalesas or poisons um, of greed, hatred, and delusion. It helps loosen the attachment. When we give, it's an antidote also to um, aversion. Because in that moment of giving and generosity, you're free of um, aversion and ill will. And it also displaces delusion because it weakens that self-centeredness um, that comes from you know, a self-concept that's tight and contracted. Buddha Dasa said, if you can't understand non-self, you can understand through non-selfishness. So it's a releasing of our ideas about who we are, our fixed views and our um, contracted self-concepts. Ayakima also describes generosity as a countermeasure that helps us let go of me and mine, and to think instead in terms of helpfulness and togetherness in our relation to others. Um, but it isn't so easy, because we grow up, really, from the time we're born with the idea of me and mine. Um, I was at um, a family dinner just before I left. I have siblings that came from England and from the States, and we hadn't all been together for about seven years. And um, my brother proceeded to tell a story to a new um, brother-in-law um, about how when I was about three, I would run around the garden clutching this huge yellow ball and saying, mine, mine. <laughs> um, and um, I do distinctly have a memory of that yellow ball. <laughs> and it was the only one. <laughs> and I think that's what happens. It was a very special and very beautiful yellow ball. And there wasn't another one. So this one was going to be mine. Um, and it's difficult in our society because um, we, want to be, we want it to be ours. It's hard for us to relinquish that idea of specialness and of wanting. Our culture is about getting things, becoming somebody, gaining. And it really feeds that. And it's hard for us to develop generosity when there's so much pressure to, be, to have things. So the aims of generosity, then, are to relinquish, to free ourselves 
and also as we give to free others, as we share. One of the things that most determines the benefit of generosity to ourselves and others is the motivation behind it. Motivation is really key when the motivation behind it is kindness. The generosity that comes brings joy to everyone. In the story of the retreat center I mentioned, um, the food is not the food that you have here. Um, they have a cook, who's own, and the only way he knows how to cook is meat and potatoes, Canadian style. And so preparing vegetarian food is a stretch. And if any of you here have problems with the food here, you should go there. <laughs> it would be a good lesson in watching aversion. <laughs> After seven days of boiled eggs and macaroni cheese and the same baked beans, <laughs> it's a challenge. And so we decided, <laughs> we decided in our generosity, Jenna and I, to give him a cookbook. <laughs> A vegetarian cookbook. But our motivation was not totally pure, <laughs> as we gave him this cookbook. And it hasn't worked. <laughs> and we're still plotting. <laughs> the only thing we've found to do is to open our hearts to this is how it is. Um, it's not going to change. His way of sharing generosity is to cook in this way. and. Um, that's how it is. So there are different ways of giving, um, different levels of giving. The Buddha called the first level of giving beggarly giving. It's all one-handed giving. And that's where it comes from a sense of obligation or that you have to do this, or maybe it's going to get you um, a tax write-off, or, <laughs> or perhaps you're giving something that has no value to you. Um, it's clothes that you don't wear anymore, so you're giving them away. But it's that kind of giving. And um, um, Maimonides, a 12th century Jewish philosopher, called this giving morosely. And that's because it doesn't really bring any joy to you or to the receiver. It's done out of a sense of duty. It's not really open-hearted. The next level of giving is friendly giving. And that's where you give something that has value to you. And it brings joy to you, and it brings joy to the other person. But at the same time, you're not putting yourself in a deficit. So this, you still have enough for yourself. Um, but you're still giving with an open heart. And that's what many of us do a fair amount of the time. The highest level of giving is kingly giving. And that's where there's a complete letting go. And there are many Jataka tales of, of the Buddha's previous lives um, where he will give his life um, in order for someone to be free. To the hungry tigress whose cubs are starving, um, the Bodhisattva in that life, particular life gave his body um, so that the tiger and her cubs would live. That's the kind of living that, giving, <laughs> that um, most of us, um, it's a stretch for. <laughs> 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 
I would read all these things and say, yes, that sounds great, but I just cannot imagine myself doing it. Um, so those are, those are different levels of giving. And giving at any level um, where there's a sense of real connection brings joy and contentment. And when we give in that way, we let go of any, ecta- any expectation of a result or an outcome. We're not giving for approval. We're not giving so that we'll get recognition. But just it's just coming from that place of wanting to share. So on the deepest or highest level, in that sense when there's no expectation, really there's no giver, there's no receiver, and there isn't really any, any gift. It's more the universe rearranging itself. Things are recycling. And that way, there's joy for everyone concerned. So what is it that we give? There are so many um, ways of giving, whether it's material resources or time or energy, whatever it is. One of the greatest gifts that we can give and that some of you, many of you, have been giving to yourselves on this retreat is self-acceptance, is that allowing ourselves to be just as we are, being able to be simply present with ourselves for whatever arises, the gift of presence for the difficult mind states, for whatever is occurring. And that is a gift. This is a poem um, by Derek Walcott, and it's called Love After Love. The time will come when, with elation, you will greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself, Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you have ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit. Feast on your life. So that's the gift that we can give ourselves. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life. So as you've been sitting here, you've been giving yourself the gift of mindfulness. Each moment you receive an experience, a breath, a sound, a sensation, a thought, a difficult emotion, all those things, and receiving it and releasing it, receiving it with generosity, releasing it. And as we release, 
the things that arise, a stillness comes and a peace and a contentment. Those are the two sides of generosity, the giving ourselves that kind of attention, the kindness, the respect, and the releasing of whatever, the relinquishing of whatever arises. And that kind of peacefulness, stillness, is able to receive things just as they are. And it provides a safety and a stability to our practice. And in our lives, when we're in that kind of space, we can offer that to others, that kind of presence and peacefulness and stillness, where we can reflect things the way they are, validate them, and not placate or not need to fix. Simply be with as they are. And we give ourselves the gift of spaciousness, of allowing all that arises. We don't need to run from then the, or get attached to the difficult mind states. We can be generous and include them. So it's an including rather than an excluding. When the fear comes and you don't want to feel it, rather than going fear and moving away quickly, oh, fear, having compassion for it, or for the anger, or for the self-judgment, oh, having compassion, being generous, and then releasing it. And in that kind of generosity and openness, we can explore contracted and frightened mind states, and understanding comes. And when, we pro- when we're with others in difficult situations, we can provide that to them and not get so caught in clinging and um, prejudgments and anger and jealousy. It's such a gift, this being present with acceptance. And we can begin then to share the fullness of our being, all that we are, our enthusiasm, our vitality, our joy, and our humor, all those parts. This is so helpful in times of conflict, um, when we can offer a peaceful presence and empathy. Um, I have a dear friend um, in Canada who also teaches with me. And shortly after, um, maybe sometime after um, 9-11, she had been visiting with a friend from the States, both old friends. And they got into a discussion about Um, all the war against terrorism. And all of a sudden, she found herself in this really heated conflict. And she was amazed. Because in Canada, we're a lot removed from some of the intensity of the feelings that there are here. And she found it very difficult to to be with the intensity of both their, their emotions. And what she realized is that when we feel cornered, when people, when animals feel cornered, we tend to want to either freeze or strike out verbally or physically. It's, it's a, a normal reaction when, when, you know, when my dog corners my cat, <laughs> there's a response. <laughs> and we do that too. So what she did instead, when she noticed that that's what she was doing, 
when she was pushing her views and her friend was becoming defensive back. What she did instead was she began to offer empathy. How hard it is for you. What is it like for you? And what she found was when they both started to feel safe and accepted, they were able to receive each other's views. And so in times like that we have right now, we really need to be able to do that. To even First, we have to offer the empathy to ourselves sometimes, to offer ourselves the generosity before we can offer it to another. The precepts are a way of giving also, and they're a gift of love and of protection. This is Thich Nhat version of the second precept. I vow to practice generosity by sharing my time, energy, and material resources with those who are in real need. I am determined not to possess anything that should belong to others. And so that sharing of our resources is a precious gift. It's being able to say, that we have enough. Michelle McDonald, um, at a retreat I was at, said that when she wakes up in the morning, sometimes she'll say, may whatever I receive today be enough. So often our moments are not enough. And that ability to share um, is a movement of opening that. This is um, oh. this is just a, um, a simple thing from the UN um, from the UN report from the Human Development Report of '97, and it says that the financial assets of the world's seven richest men would provide access to clean water, social services, education for all of the world's poor for over 10 years. And um, it's important to know those facts, um, because there is actually enough if we were to share it. Um, And it's hard to share when we grow up in a culture that tells us all the time to consume. So it's not to judge that, but to be aware of the ways that we can share. One of, the, um, one of the things um, when I was talking about the levels of giving is that sometimes we can read and hear about the kingly giving and think, how can I give? Someone said the other morning, how can I give? I'm an ordinary person. And I've been so moved by the ways that ordinary people in my life have given. Um, I lead a group for, um, for as a stress reduction group in Vancouver, and uh, often the women who come have a variety of different illnesses. And this particular group that I was giving, um, 
the majority of the people there had either anxiety or panic disorders or depression or um, some kind of emotional or mental illness. And there was a woman who wanted to join the group who had been severely traumatized as a child and had been in and out of psychiatric hospitals many times in her life. And she was at again, yet again in a period of despair in her life. And she'd been referred to be by a psychiatrist. And I wasn't sure she was ready for the group because she seemed so isolated and so afraid and unable to trust. But she really wanted to come, so I agreed. And over the period of the eight weeks, um, there were several young women in the group who were in their late 20s and had small children. And they were completely accepting of her. Um, she never shared her history. And they treated her with complete inclusiveness. They shared their stories about their babies. They asked her about her day. And they just included her in a perfectly natural way. And then we had um, a full day workshop. Um, and on our full day, people sit and walk and do some of the things that you've been doing, including guided meditations. And we had to hold it um, in the old hospital. And um, she was really afraid to go there. But she came, and she sat and walked. And at the end of the day, when we were sitting in our circle and people were um, able to give feedback, she said, um, you have all given me the greatest gift. I have never felt safe in my life before, but I felt safe with all of you. And these ordinary young people had given her that gift just by being who they were, just by being present. And um, she's continued to come alive, and it's been beautiful to see. And that moved them, too. That was a gift for them. So we can't know always how, how we're giving, what it is that we're doing. Another way that we can give to ourselves and each other is forgiveness. It's a difficult way of giving. It can be very hard for us to forgive ourselves our mistakes. I know it's really hard for me. Sometimes we hold on to them for a long time, and we shut ourselves out of our hearts. And I was really moved by the forgiveness practices that Nelson Mandela began, and that are now um, reconciliation practices that are now spreading in many countries. And there are re reconciliation practices in prisons. And one of the members of our sangha, when she was young, her father had been murdered in Granada. And um, about a year and a half ago, um, the young man who had murdered her father um, was up for parole. This happened many years ago. And in the prison that where he is, there's a reconciliation process going on. And so they wrote to her, asking her if she would come and be part of this process. And it was very painful for her, seeing how hard it was 
in her heart to forgive. What that brought up for her, this person who had at that time in her life seemingly destroyed the safety of her life. And she has practiced for some years. And she came and sat with it and walked with it and talked about it. And she did go down and she met him. She sent him photographs of her children. He wrote back. And she went down and met him and they met. And um, she described and um, made a, a tape of some of this process and brought it back to our Sangha. And it was so moving to hear the story of his life and how his life had been destroyed by that one action when he was 18 years old and how it had destroyed her life, but how it was now possible not to forgive what he did, but for her heart to be open. And it's still a process. It's not over. There's um, there's a story that some of you may have heard about an African tribe. And when someone violates the rules or the customs of this particular tribe, all the members are called together. And they gather together in a big circle with um, the person who has committed the offense in the center. And each person, in turn, tells that person what's good about them. They tell stories about the kind and generous things that person has done in the past and in their life. And they continue in this way until everyone has spoken. And it can last, apparently, um, over a day. And then, when it's over, the circle is broken, and there's a celebration, and the person is welcomed back into the tribe in a ritual way. And it's a way of not writing our mistakes on our face for the rest of our lives, of releasing and opening our hearts to how we are now. Receiving is as important as giving. The Buddha said there are two kinds of rare and precious beings, those who are generous and those who are grateful. And gratitude brings tremendous joy into our lives. It's that, it's that appreciation for beauty in people and in life. And um, it's, it's so valuable to our practice. And it's a very simple thing just to receive. And yet sometimes it's so hard for us to do. This is um, a, a Mutz cartoon. And the two bigger dogs say, Hey, Stinky, what are you thankful for? And Stinky says, This moment. They look surprised and they say, Anything else? And he says, Yes, this moment. <laughs> so we can have gratitude for very simple things. For the cup of tea that we're drinking for the sunset, for very simple things at any moment, that's right there, this moment. 
gratitude receives every experience and it supports our meditation and our lives. Ayakima um, suggests that when you begin to meditate, you bring into your awareness something that you have gratitude for in that moment. Some small thing that you have gratitude for, or some large thing. That every time you begin a period of practice, you include gratitude. Giving and receiving are um, cyclical. And sometimes it's hard for us to receive. We can brush it off. Oh, I, you know, I was going to do that anyway. Or I already have one of those. And we don't take in when someone really wants to be received. So receiving is a gift. Um, in my practice, there's um, an elderly lady called, Scottish lady called Molly Grierson. And Molly became quite ill, and she'd lived on her own independently for years. And finally a time came when she was going to have to go into a nursing home. She'd had a crisis and we'd had to admit her to hospital. And we knew she'd be real, it would be really hard for her to leave her independence. And so I had to go and see her on one of those big medical wards where there are many elderly people. It was a geriatric ward. And usually the nurses look very stressed out and kind of grim and harried. And so I went in to see Molly and I said to the nurses, how's Mrs. Grierson? And they all turned and they smiled and they just, oh, Molly. And so I went in to see Molly and she's sitting there, oh, Dr. Ross, it's so good of you to come. I'm so thankful. And um, she said, I miss my wee house so bad. <laughs> and she said, but they took me to see this place and the people there were so kind. I'll be fine. And um, so kind. And usually people complain about everything, <laughs> but they were so kind. And as we were talking, and she's just glowing at me, and as we were talking, um, a, a, a cleaning person came by who was just sort of picking up and cleaning the room and, you know, sort of crouched down and looking quite serious. And Molly reached over and touched her and looked into her face and she said, thank you so much, dear. It's so beautiful when the place is clean. And this woman's face, you know, just lit up. And it, she was, she just received everybody. It was like Darshan with Molly. <laughs> <you know? laughs> and I sat there for way longer than I should have, you know, just <laughs> taking in Molly. <laughs> and I was late for work and I didn't care. But um, it, she, her receiving was a gift to everyone that came in contact with her. And it was genuine. So that kind of connection feeds. We want to be generous when we feel received, when we feel, and it, it just goes around and around. However, it's not so easy. Sometimes we don't feel loving and generous. Sometimes our heart is contracted and we don't feel spacious, or we find we're giving from a place of tightness. And the, the, it's useful to really use our mindfulness to work with the blocks that come, whether, whatever they are. 
And the blocks, as usual, are the forces of greed, hatred, and delusion. Comparing mind um, really gets in the way of experiencing both gratitude and being able to be generous. That I don't have enough, others have more. Or that I'm not worthy, or I don't deserve it. All come in the way. Our attachments and our delusions that what we do doesn't matter, that who we are isn't enough. That how could I do enough? Or our attachment to outcome. There's no point in giving. It's not going to make a difference. All those things can block it. And we can use our mindfulness to see where it is that we're stuck, to notice our hidden agendas. Often, many of us, and I know I did in the early years of my practice, I was giving um, without being mindful. I gave and gave and gave and got really burned out. There was always too much that still needed to be done. It could never be enough. What I realized when I got sick from doing this was that I was attached to an outcome. I was caught in attachment. I didn't want people to suffer, so I was trying to fix it. And that I had aversion to their suffering. That was the aversion. And I was deluded because I thought that I wasn't good enough if I didn't do it all. And um, I was also fostering dependency (laughs) by trying to do it all by trying to meet everyone's needs. So it's skillful to use our mindfulness to see where 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 are giving the motivations not quite pure. To see, is this a time for me to be giving to myself? Is this a time for me where I could push the edge a little bit and see if I can just extend giving a bit more? It's like we have um, generosity training wheels. (laughs) We practice by being generous to ourselves. And we notice what the blocks are, and we work mindfully with them. We see where it is that we're holding on, and we're caught, and we relinquish it. And it comes spontaneously with practice. And you've seen that. Gratitude just comes spontaneously with our practice. And from that sense of gratitude comes the awareness to be generous. And we can also train by very simple things. Pema Chodron describes a technique of holding something you really value in one hand and giving it to the other hand. (laughs) 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 It's very simple. Uh, And there are other practices that you can do just to push the edge on generosity, the ways that we can share our resources, that we can be aware when we're taking and not giving. When there might be someone who needs, and we really don't need, we have enough. Disraeli says, the greatest good you can do for another is not just to share your riches, but reveal to each their own. So it's not about charity, it's about empowering empowering ourselves, empowering each other, so that we can all act and not be a victim or a poor person that we give to because we're sorry for them. It's an empowering. 
So, and it's being willing to look honestly. What do I really need to be happy in this moment? And not confusing happiness with pleasure or generosity with indulgence. And a very simple example would be sometimes when I wake up in the morning, um, usually I sit early in the morning, it's very nice and warm in bed. So I think, what would bring me happiness? Sometimes I think staying in bed. But what that really brings is pleasure. And there's this difference between pleasure and happiness. What will bring me ultimately happiness is if I get up and sit. That's what the generosity to myself is. Indulgence is lying in bed. So noticing those moments and differentiating. So I'd like to end with this um, passage that was written by um, the Trappist monk Father Theophany, or Theophane, as it was in honor of Deepama, who was a teacher of Joseph and Sharon and Jack and many others. And she was infinitely compassionate. And this is what he wrote, writes in honor of her. What is your heart like? That's what they wanted to know. They brought in someone who had just died, and they proceeded to open up her heart. You wouldn't believe what was in there. You wouldn't believe it. White people, black people, atheists, rich people, poor people, drunkards, prostitutes, priests, politicians, children, judges, baseball players, cranks, and even me. How did I get there? Is this what I will be like when I die? When they open up my heart, what will they find? May we open our hearts to the grace that is always here. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.